it's interesting, you know, we, we didn't talk this week a lot about the, the liturgy, and yet dealing with the question of who we are, right, our identity, our understanding of who we are is going to shape a lot of what I'm going to talk about today. So the Spirit obviously had that in mind because he laid it on uh, his heart and laid it on mine as well. Our identity shapes so much of who we are. It's a constant message that we have uh, in our culture. And it's been something that's shaped us as a country and as a people and as Americans from the very beginning, right? Yesterday, we celebrated July 4th. And in celebrating July 4th, we um, celebrate the start of a nation that really began when some guys pinned down the sentence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Meaning like they, it's just understood, it's assumed, it's common sense that we have these rights, right? They're, they're God-given. And among those rights that are God-given is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that, that sort of understanding kind of shapes us as Americans, right? So it, it drives our uh, desire to do our own thing, not be told what to do, come and go as we please, and let us live our life and leave us alone. That's kind of like who we are. It shapes everything and every aspect of who we are. But then as culture goes on, we have found ourselves even now um, being catechized by whatever we're being told in the news. You alluded to this reality that every night we turn on the TV and depending on what station you're on, you'll be met with, you're not going to believe this and you're absolutely going to be angry about it. Depending on what channel you are, pick, pick whichever side of the spectrum or the political aisle you're on, the statement's the same. This is crazy. You're going to be angry. Buckle in, get some popcorn. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> and that identity shapes so much of this year and this culture and where we are to the point that as we think about who we're going to pick as our next leader in November, even that identity language has shaped itself, right? On the one hand, there's the fighting for a certain way of life and a certain identity and, and a certain greatness. On the other side, it's we're at war with the very soul of the nation. We've got to rescue the nation or we're going to lose its soul. And that identity language is used to manipulate each side to support their platform. Or you may be in the libertarian third party and go, these two dudes are crazy, vote for this lady, right? And if you've been following the news at all in the last 24 hours, if you don't like either of those three, there's Kanye West. I mean, so there's just a variety of identity to be had. It shapes so much of who we are. It even shapes the way we treat one another, right? A quick scroll through Facebook. As I look out today, even at a myriad of masks, that becomes a hotbed issue, right? Either you're intrinsic 
you know, you're pressing on my freedoms by making me wear the mask, or you don't love your neighbor if you don't wear the mask, or, you know, my righteousness is found in my mask wearing, or my righteousness is found in my not mask wearing, or my righteousness is found in my voting, or my not voting. Y'all are all crazy. I'm not voting for anything. You need to be like me. And it could go on and on and on, right? My righteousness is found in my social uh, justice and my proclamation of it on social media platforms, or my righteousness is found in how anti-woke I am and how I don't participate in any of that and so I'm better than you because I don't do that and then we devour one another via our thumbs and then look at each other on Sundays as if it never happened. That identity of understanding who we are shapes so much of where we are in this moment of time and I think it's important that we then look to the scriptures as we already have in the liturgy today and say, but who does God say we are? That at the end of the day, to paraphrase Calvin, we understand who we are in a proper view of who God is. So as we get into the passage today, I want us to understand who we are. We're going to see three things as we get ready to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're going to see who we were. We're going to see who we are now. And we're going to see how we then live. So who we were, who we are now, and how we then live. Let's, uh, if you would, stand and let's read God's word. Starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read all the way through verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Here Paul tells us, exactly who we were and who we are and how we live. And he starts with a sobering, hard-to-hear, hard-to-swallow reality of who we were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all lived, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's something you want to throw on a coffee mug, right? 
that's the thing you want to tape in the morning in your mirror to help really motivate you. You were a dead sinner deserving the wrath of God. But that's who we were. This idea even of understanding that this deadness wasn't just um, you were a corpse, but you were dead and didn't even realize it. You were a zombie even, if we want to use that sort of fictional language. You were dead and walking, oblivious to your actions having any sort of effect and accruing wrath from God. You were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Notice that Paul uses all three areas of how sin affects us. He uses the devil, the world, and our flesh, all in this same three category section to describe what was happening. This idea of walking is this idea of being in lockstep, marching along the way. We were following absolutely after Satan, doing whatever our flesh desired, oblivious to the reality that with every step we were just marching further on towards death. So much so that it says that we follow the course of this world. That that same secular humanism or postmodernism or whatever ism we want to label in the culture that we drive, it was this idea that everything about the world shaped our thoughts, our desires, and then by extension, our actions. And notice what it says, that you carried out the desires of your body and the mind. Notice there's not a separation there. Jonathan Edwards, when he wrote The Freedom of the Will, pushed back against the Arminian idea that you can kind of compartmentalize your thoughts separate from your actions. Now, at the end of the day, everything that we do is what we deem the highest good, right? At the end of the day, we're going to do the thing that we think is best and the thing that's going to make us the most happy. And so our thoughts and our feelings are going to drive our actions. It doesn't doesn't come out of nowhere. We do the thing we feel. It's just naturally who we are. Well, in this particular case, Paul says who we were were people that were driven by our flesh, and that flesh was being taught and catechized and instructed by the world and ultimately that world was being controlled and influenced by Satan. To say it another way, as we use Colossians for the liturgy today, we were in the domain of darkness and needed to be transferred out of that into the kingdom of the sun. We were blind. The, the way Paul tells the Corinthians that, that the God of this world has blinded the unbeliever. We were oblivious to everything that we were doing, but we were doing it because we wanted to. Make no mistake about it. We were absolutely sinning and enemies with God and enjoyed it, but had no idea that every bit of it was killing us. That's who we were. And that's important to understand who we were Because understanding where we've come from and understanding where all of humanity is, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, helps you even understand that there is this flesh, there is this old man that you kind of have to repeatedly 
remind him that he is dead and over with. Because if you're not careful, the flesh will motivate you to not care about the things of God and to be self-consumed. We'll be navel-gazing. We'll just be looking down, consumed, and turn inward on ourselves. And even now, if we're not careful, we'll slip back into the reality of letting the culture tell us how to think, how to feel, and how to believe. And then we then, because we're in the 21st century and we're a part of the culture of 2020, we'll then express those emotions of self-centeredness onto 140 characters or less. We live in a world where, if you think about it, we go to a nice restaurant, we see really good food, and the first thing we think was, I need to take a picture of that and show everybody. I mean, how weird is that? How weird is that? Like, if you explain that to anybody else, is every time I eat, I need to take a picture of it and show it to people, they would be like, that's kind of strange, bro. But that's Instagram, right? I need to take the picture of whatever I'm doing, but I need to crop it in such a, such a way. I need to filter out the impurities. I need to position it in certain ways to make sure that it looks like I have it all together. And then when I feel something, I need to make sure and post it or snap it or TikTok it or whatever. And if we're not careful, we sit down on our couch, we turn on the news, and we're informed. This is how you should be outraged. This is how you should think. This is how you should be educated. This is how the government should be doing for you. This is how the government should get out of the way, or this is whatever the case may be. And we are informed before we know it. We are, again, although freed from this reality, we are now following after the course of the world, following after the prince of the power of the air, and we are now letting our flesh run rampant. Right? This is the very thing that Paul tells the Romans in Romans 6 that, hey, you don't get freed to go back into slavery. This is who you were. This is not who you are. But understanding how easy and how subtle it is helps us to understand what's happening and helps us understand the temptations we could face, that oftentimes we read this text and we think, dead and trespasses and sins. Those were, those were the horrible sinners that did all the things, right? They murdered people and shot heroin in their eyeballs. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They, we don't really think about being catechized by the daily news and the culture and being swept away, away from our identity in Christ and placing our hope, identity, and security in the world. That's what's happening. Even it's not surprising that Martin Lloyd-Jones 60 years ago writes about the same thing in his commentary on Ephesians and the thing he, de he does to describe following after the course of the world, following after the prince of the power of the air, letting our passions and our desires be taken up and being children of wrath what does he describe? He describes life in everyday culture. Nothing is new under the sun. This is who we are. Sin left us in a terrible state and without hope, dead. But the good news of the gospel starts here with the fact that Paul is talking to the Ephesians and by extension us who have put our faith in Christ about past tense issues. 
this is who you were. This isn't who you are. And so that leads us not only to understand who we were, but it leads us to ask the question, who are we now? Hear the good news of the gospel starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the grip of Satan. Saved from the world and saved from ourselves. By grace you have been saved. So now we look and ask the question, so who are we now? I want you to notice the bookend here, that in the first section, Paul is going to talk about how you weren't once were walking. In verse 10, he's going to tell you how you now should walk. But in this section where he deals with who we are now and how that came to be, notice there's no walking. We're made alive, we're raised, and we're seated. It's God who does all the walking here. Because we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We were unaware that every step we were taking was doing nothing but leading us to further death. We needed to be awakened. We needed to be made alive. We needed to be raised. We needed to be changed. Because if we weren't careful, we would just embrace more and more and more to our own destruction. But notice what he says. But... God, verse 4, being rich in mercy. Our salvation was accomplished simply because of the mercy of God. Not because he earned anything, not because he looked at us and said, well, I mean, I could use some of you. I'd probably, you know, need to add some of you to my team. No, he simply looked at us, and despite our trespasses, despite being children of wrath, deserving the just punishment of God, he instead didn't give us what we deserved, but instead gave us mercy. In verse 9, it says it another way, not a result of works. It wasn't any good that we were doing. It wasn't because we were good enough or we tried hard enough, or we checked enough boxes or read our Bible enough or prayed enough. It's simply because God wanted to. How good is that? That's the good news of the gospel, that we deserved wrath and got mercy and grace instead. And this isn't just enough mercy. Right? It isn't just he had just enough to kind of cover the church and that's it. He's rich in mercy. He lavishes it upon us. This is never-ending, not tight-budget mercy, but extravagant, rich, lavishing mercy. So we see that we are now saved because of the mercy of God. We're also saved because of the love of God. Notice what it says, because of the great love of which he loved us. That's why he did it, because he loved you. Not because you're great, not because you had it all together, not because you're flawless, not because you're pious, but because he loved you, right? This is the same thing that he tells Israel as he's getting ready to march them into the promised land. Don't think that you're, I'm doing this because you're great. You're not. Don't think it because you're holy. No, you're stiff-necked. Don't think it's because you're mighty. You're real small. 
I'm doing this for the sake of my name and for the sake of my glory. And here he does the same thing in salvation. He doesn't do it because we're great. He does it because he is. Because he loved us. It's the love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In the letter to the Romans, Paul says it this way, even when we were enemies, even when we hated God, he loved us. Anyway, John in his epistle says it like this, we love him, why? Because he first loved us. Everything that God is doing here is out of mercy and our love, it was a love that was given to us while we deserved the opposite. And notice the positional change. We go from walking after Satan, following him, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, letting our desires and our flesh run rampant, being children of wrath like the rest of mankind, to being positionally different. Notice the language that is used here. He made us alive. Why? Because we were dead. That's the first thing that needed to happen. We needed to be raised, resurrected, made alive, made new, given new life, given a new heart, had the heart of stone removed, all the things that the scripture tells us and all the ways it describes it, we needed to be made alive. And then the next thing he does is he raises us up. And the third thing he does is he seats us at the right hand with Christ. That, doesn't that sound exactly like what Jesus did? He went to the cross and he died. But then he was raised. And not only was he made alive, but he was then ascended and seats, sits at the right hand of the Father. Everything about our position is intrinsically tied to our union with Christ. I'll say it in a simpler way. Everything that is true about Jesus became true about us because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus was raised, so we are raised. Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, so we then get to be seated with Christ. Jesus resurrected, so we then can hope in the hope of the resurrection. Everything that is true about what Christ has done, we receive the benefits. That's what the union in Christ does. And that understanding of our position in Christ, our being made alive, our being raised up, our being seated, our being lavished with mercy and love, that now shapes your identity. So now you can turn on the TV and be catechized with the world and go, yeah, that's not who I am, though. That's, that's not telling me about myself. God is telling me about myself that I am in Christ, that we are the church. Another way that Paul says it in the, to the Ephesians, that your citizenship is in heaven, right? That we exist in this, this two-kingdom reality of being in the world, but we have our identity in the kingdom of God. That's the tension that we exist in. That's the, the world that we exist in. And it, and it matters because... Our fight, then, is constantly not to be caught up into the course of this world, but to remember you are citizens of a kingdom, and your king is Jesus. So I can love my neighbor, and I can work, and I can do all the things that, that make you a normal citizen 
in America, and that's fine and okay and good. But don't push it so much that it embraces every bit of your identity that all of a sudden you forget you, you have been given a kingdom, and your king is the eternal son. Does that make sense? That matters to understand who we are now, because if we don't understand who we are now, we'll get caught up in finding our hope, our identity, and our security in anything and everything else. Maybe we already have. Maybe we find our justification in the voting booth, or we find our justification in our social media interactions, or we find our justification in the music that we listen to, or we're justified by the beverage we drink or don't drink, right? That if we're not careful, we'll find our justification in anything other than Jesus, and then maybe we will start out in being justified by faith, but then we'll be sanctified by our good works. That's the opposite of what it says here. It's by grace you have been saved and not of works. It's our position that then drives our purpose. Notice what it says lastly in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only do we understand who we used to be to know what we need to avoid and what we need the Spirit's help with in killing and avoiding constantly. But we understand who we are now. When you let that identity in Christ, united with him, drive everything about our hope, our identity, and our security. And we let that drive how we think and how we feel and how we act in this world because we are citizens of this new kingdom, but that then also drives how we live. This makes sense to us that if you don't, you don't even realize it, that we do the things that we do out of a direct proportion of what we believe, what we think, and what we feel. Right? Even to the most basic level, that if I was in line at a bakery, and I saw a brownie, I'm going to buy the brownie because I like brownies, right? But I'm going to make the action based off of my belief that brownies are delicious, and I'm going to make my actions off of the feeling that I'm hungry for a brownie. Now you all are hungry for a brownie. Good job. <laughs> and I'm going to make my action on how I think and act and feel. I believe brownies are good, especially with ice cream, especially with milk. I know that they are good because I've had one before. So I know and I have knowledge of what they taste like. I'm hungry for a brownie, so then I then act. Our action, our life, how we then live is directly tied to our identity. If we're identifying ourselves in all the things that the world is telling us to find our hope in, whether it be what the news is telling us, what social media is telling us, what our friends are telling us, what music is telling us, what movies are telling us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we then will act and think and feel out of that identity. But that's not who we are, church. 
Our identity is rooted in Christ. Our identity is rooted in the reality of this gospel. So then we live and we hear verse 10 as a conclusion of everything he said up to this point. We are his workmanship. Workmanship, literally, we are his poetry. We are the thing that God has stitched together and is painting this beautiful picture of. It's this poem that he's unfolding and has been unfolding through the history of redemption, that everything from Genesis to Revelation is one story. There's one crimson thread, and everything finds its fulfillment in Christ. That God has been doing this one beautiful thing and has then made us a part of it. We are his workmanship. But notice what it says, created in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is hammering this point home that your identity is in Jesus, your hope is in Jesus, your security, your safeness, your seatedness is in Christ. And even the good works that you do, even the way that you now live is created in Christ Jesus. And you were created for good works. Luther said it this way, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. Think about that for a second. God doesn't need your good works. He's not looking for your good works. Matter of fact, all of our righteousness is filthy rags, right? That's what Isaiah tells us. Imagine what our unrighteousness is. God doesn't need your good works, but need and want are two different things, right? Every adult said amen. I, I need to pay my bills. I want to go on vacation and I have to worry about it, right? Needs and wants are different things. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does, but he does want your good works, right? Jesus said it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. When we understand our position, we understand our purpose. Our confession says it this way. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're created for good works. And then notice what it says, which God prepared beforehand. This takes us all the way back to all the truths that we read at the call to worship in Ephesians chapter 1, that not only is our salvation and our election and our position as the church and our salvation as Christians and even the faith that we were given a gift, all of that was prepared beforehand, predestined before the foundations of the world by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But even the good works that we will do are prepared beforehand. That frees you. Now you're not having to go, well, i got to figure out what good works I need to do so I can maintain this contract with God. That's how we act sometimes. Sometimes we understand and profess as Presbyterians justification by faith. We're reformed. It's our thing. It's the, the banner. But then we will then maybe kind of start to push sanctification by pietism. Sanctification by my quiet time or my prayer life or my whatever, whatever. But even the good works that we do God has created ahead of time and given us to do so now we are then free not to have to try to invent them but just to walk in them 
Mamas, maybe your good work is to care for your kids. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and you start to think, well, how in the world am I going to be able to do good works? Well, love your neighbor, your most immediate neighbor. Not killing them is a good work on their behalf, right? I get it. Like, I have a five-month-old, and I think I, before that we fostered five teenagers, and I had then at one point in time we had a 10-year-old and a 4-year-old, and I'm convinced, having seen the different spectrums and, and seasons of parenting, that all of parenting is just trying not to let them die. That's it, right? Like, as an infant, you're trying to make sure they don't die. As, as a uh, toddler, they're getting into all sorts of things, and they want to take the fork and stick it into the light socket, and you're trying to not make sure they don't die. They don't run into traffic. As teenagers, they start to get into a car, and you just want to make sure they don't die. As an adult, when they're making adult decisions, the whole point is, I just don't want you to die, right? We're trying to keep them and save them from death. But on that basic level, maybe the good works that you have are just being a good employee. Maybe your, the way you love your neighbor is by being a good employee to your boss so that you can help them earn a living and you earn a living as well. Maybe uh, your good works are caring for your neighbor across the street. Maybe the good works are just the things that the Lord gives you every single day. Hear that freedom for a second to where you don't have to invent that. These good works were prepared beforehand for you that you may walk in them. Our walking out now is the direct opposite of everything that he said in the first, first half. That we used to walk after the prince of the power of the air, following the course of the world, letting our fleshly desires drive everything that we do. But we now walk in a new identity as people that have been made alive, that have been raised, that have been seated, that are in Christ. So now we live out the glorious good news of the gospel in the good works that we do, not as a way to try to earn our salvation, but as an exhortation to holiness. It's not a weight that crushes us that if we don't do enough things, God is going to realize he kind of got the short end of the stick here and he messed up on this investment. He's never going to change his mind. You're assured of your pardon. You are forgiven. So now then we live out this workmanship as people of the kingdom. People in Christ. It says you go out through the week this week. You can now hear all the craziness that is going to vie for your attention and, and tell you to be outraged and tell you to find your hope identity in anything else other than Jesus. You can hear it and you can say, Spirit, help me. Give me the good works you've already prepared beforehand so I, I can walk in them. Help me to live in light of the gospel this week. May we find our identity. May we understand who we are in the beauty of the gospel today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that although in our sin we questioned your goodness, you loved us anyway. And although in our sin we were children of wrath, justly deserving your punishment, you instead sent your son to absorb all that so that for any of us who have put our faith in Jesus or anyone here who may not 
has yet put their faith in Jesus, we can hear the good news that if we put our trust, our hope, our identity, and our security in the finished work of Jesus, you now don't see our shortcomings and our failures and our flaws. You see Jesus, that you made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, that great exchange that we don't understand but we are so thankful for. Help us to live in light of that reality, in light of that hope today so that we, can't, we don't get distracted in trying to find our identity and anything else the world tells us we need to be caught up in but we can live as citizens both in the world around us, interacting where we feel necessary, speaking up for the oppressed where we feel it's needed, but we don't find our identity and our hope and our security in anything that the world would tell us. We find our hope, identity, and security in you and it's out of that reality that we live. Would you help us? We need your spirit to do this this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.